best knockoff you ever saw. So in the 90s, there was a doctor, a Scottish doctor, his name was Robert Smith, and he was um, in his clinic, and a person came in, patient, and said, doctor, uh, my left arm does not belong to me. It's not mine. I was born with it, but I, it's, it was never mine. And I want it to be amputated. I want it to be taken off. Every time I look at it, I get a sense of abhorrence, of disgust, because this arm is not mine. It belongs to someone else. And I know what I'm supposed to be. I know what my body is supposed to be. And it's supposed to be a person without an arm. And Dr. Robert Smith uh, looked into the case and he was the first doctor to give an amputation to a patient who had otherwise no health complications at all. Yes, this is called a bodily identity integrity disorder, BIID. And um, he did two of them, and it became widespread news in the early 90s because it was a big ethical dilemma. There is no other effective medication, no forms of therapy um, have been proven to be effective. And if you do nothing, if you do not treat these people, most of them, or many of them, will self-amputate. They will remove their own limbs, um, usually through methods that are a lot less sterile and safe than a doctor might use. So Dr. Smith said, therefore, because there is no alternative solution, um, and because I trust that these patients are aware of, of what their body's supposed to look like, um, I feel as a doctor it's my moral obligation to give them these surgeries. Other people vehemently disagreed and said that this is a, a breach of, of ethical code to amputate. And it's still up in the air. There's still no clear right and wrong in this scenario. So why do I bring it up? Because um, bodily identity integrity disorder is the, um, it's parallels gender dysphoria or um, the desire, to, the feeling that the body that you're in is not your own. The difference is primarily, or pretty much only, that bodily identity integrity disorder views a limb as something foreign, while gender dysphoria views the sex characteristics that define you as male or female as foreign and give you a sense of abhorrence. And that's pretty much the only difference. Um, and therefore, the question remains the same. There is no proven method of treatment otherwise. There are no drugs. There are no therapies. There is only the surgical option. And the question is, do we take the step or do we not? So in the case of gender dysphoria, it's become mainstream and common and, in fact, mandatory in many cases to perform the surgeries. Um, for sure, in the short term, surgeries are effective at relieving the effects of gender dysphoria. Um, Long-term studies, m many say yes, that they are effective. Uh, there's some few that, that are not, that, that say not effective, and of course, everyone debates about which one is the more effective study, which one has, uh, is, is excluding the right people or including the right people, and which one are long enough or not long enough. Uh, but it seems pretty much that it is a effective in some sense. It's an effective remedy in some sense. So 
the question then becomes, how early do we begin the surgery? This is where the real moral dilemma shows up, which is gender dysphoria appears very, very young. It can be diagnosed uh, as early as age three or four, where there's persistent insistence on the part of children that their body does not belong to them, or at least certain characteristics of their body are not theirs. And they feel revulsion anytime they see them. And if indeed surgery is going to be the desired outcome here, then the big problem that gets in the way is puberty. Because puberty creates permanent changes in the person's body um, that if the goal is that the person should then pass as the opposite biological sex, those changes will make it very, very difficult for them. A person who, you know, who goes through male puberty will gain cheekbones and uh, certain shoulders, Adam's apples, voices. All these changes are very, very difficult to reverse. So if the person is going to get the surgery eventually, it is in some sense a disservice to them to not do it before puberty. But on the other hand, before puberty is very young. Puberty hits very early these days. So the alternative that is currently being pushed is puberty blockers, which is we give medication that delays puberty. And that gives a buffer time where the, um, the children can then ascertain whether they are actually um, transgender and truly believe that, they are, that this body does not belong to them. It's not some other phase that's passing. And then they can have the surgery when they get old. There are two issues. Issue one is that there is a clear trend aspect to transgenderism, which means that um, the demographics of who goes through sex reassignment surgeries mirrors trends in the population where a popular figure who is female, age 26, goes through a surgery, and then you will have a spike in girls of similar ages going through the surgery. Um, and these are trends which imply that there is a mixture of people who are actually properly diagnosed with a condition, who have a, an innate issue, and those who have other issues and then tag along in a trend form. And differentiating between those two populations is very difficult. And the longer you wait, the worse the problems get if they're going through puberty. And if they're on puberty blockers, the worse problems get the opposite way because a boy who has taken puberty blockers will not develop male characteristics and they will appear more and more female in comparison to the people in their age group. So in some sense, puberty blockers aren't really completely neutral. The longer you keep on them, the more you push the person into um, viewing themselves and other people viewing them as a member of the opposite sex. The basic summary is there are no easy solutions and there are no good solutions. There's no way that everyone is happy and there's no way that every person is properly treated. There's no great way to differentiate those who are just tagging along and those who have been diagnosed early. There's no way to make sure that the right people have puberty blockers and the wrong people do not. And for the people themselves and for the parents, um, it's agonizing. And it's problematic because if untreated, if, if no surgery occurs or if no um, 
trying to pass the opposite gender occurs, there are very high chances of self-harm, of other psychological f- effects, and of suicide. Are you saying that um, both of those conditions are not mental? Like well, there's, it's hard to say what they are or what they are not. All we know is that there is no brain part that can be identified this, there is a deficiency in this part of the brain, there's an overgrowth in this part of the brain, there's, none, there's no brain scan that can identify it. So you can't take a person and stick them in, a, in a, a brain scanner and say, okay, now we can diagnose you. The only thing we have to go off of, essentially, is what the person tells us. And how persistent it is. How early did it show up? And that's, you know, they say that there's, whenever you're dealing with humans, it's a soft science. There's no definitive method. So in any situation like that, some will be harmed when they should have been helped, and some will be helped when perhaps they should have been ignored. So this has been going on for a long time? So the... But not visual. Well, not. The, no, the history of, of transgenderism is we have accounts where people express what seems to be transgender emotions for thousands of years. Um, you know, poems, writing, people claim to be in the opposite body. Then we have... Um, people who, before the surgery was available, just began acting as part of the opposite sex. And this has been happening for hundreds of years. I think it was the 1830s when the first transgender woman uh, testified before Congress, long before surgery. The first surgeries only occurred in like 1917, 1918. And then every year, the surgeries have been getting more extensive and more able to recreate the opposite gender's genitalia with more and more precision, basically. Yes. So now this is the problem we have to get to, which is what is the defining line in what, in where a person has become transgender or not? And halakhically, is there ever a difference? So this is the other problem, is, is that if the surgery is what is required, then what you're saying is that, that people who don't go through the surgery, even though they have all other um, signs of the condition, are not actually part of the opposite gender, only those who go through the surgery which also means that anybody who was transgender before 1917 was not, did not really transition, which is another hard position to take. Are you saying that from a holistic perspective or no. like a scientific well, perspective? Um, both. I mean, in, in, even in today's society, there is a debate among the definition. Does it require um, a surgery to be considered truly transgender in a sense? Um, and where's the line? Is a person cross-dressing or are they transgender? So, but is that enough? Do they have to be diagnosed with a gender dysphoria condition? Or is it enough to, that they present themselves as or believe themselves to be? And there's, again, no answers because it's a very soft science. If there was a, a way to, to find it, then the debate would, would probably resolve itself very quickly. So, halakhically, there are a lot of questions here. Uh, whenever you have a... a sexually dimorphous society, you're going to have issues. Um, can these people be part of a minion? Which side of the mechitza do they go on? If they were married, is their marriage still intact? If they do marry somebody, is that marriage valid? And these are a lot of serious questions that have to be dealt with. And because it's a relatively recent issue, that means that we don't have a huge wealth of information to go off of. So the first thing we're going to look at is source one about Ibar of Neshamas. This is going to be, talk about whether or not it's possible 
for a male soul to be in a female body or vice versa? Is there room in Kabbalah um, mysticism for that idea? And if that's truly there, then we could argue that the person is actually in, quote unquote, the wrong body. Each of us, male and female. Uh-huh. Um, I've always heard that. So that, um, we each have aspects of ourselves that are masculine and feminine. But there is a, a halachic definition. There's sorry. There's a, a kabbalistic definition of male soul versus female soul. Neshama did chura, and those are um, different in general. Although within each soul, you have aspects of both. It's kind of like fractals, where you, if you go the further you go into each part, you see all the the aspects. Every time you zoom in, you see all the aspects again. But in general, if you look at the soul as a whole, you'll get um, a male soul and a female soul. So um, this verse, Genesis, um, is from when the angels appear to Avram. This is actually from next week's Parsha, this week's Parsha, Mayira. So one of them, angels, says to Avram, after they appear at his tent, he greets them, and they said, we have a message for you. And one says to him, I will return to you next year, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. So, what's the problem with this verse? As much as you know, wives would like to uh, claim this, the son is to both of them. Not just to Sarah. It's also Avram's child. You know, she did most of the work, but not, not, you know, it's not entirely hers. So why does the angel say, Sarah will have a child? How about you both will have a child? Right, but throughout the Torah, you don't find it that whenever we say a person had a child, it's always attributed to the mother. Um, usually, in fact, it's the opposite. Usually, it's you know, in, in genealogies, usually the, the, the father has a, a child. Um, patriarchal. It is a little patriarchal. Um, but you know, honestly, I mean, in terms of continuing the inheritance and and family name, um, that was that would make sense. So this is the the outlier. Why would, why would this be the outlier? Especially when you're, talk, you're not even talking to her. You're talking to Avraham. Physical aspects. It's got to be physical aspects. I didn't catch it. You're saying it, it's, the reason is because she is going to physically have the child. Right. right. Possibly. I think the food is a recipe. What? Usually it's not. We, when we, usually the Torah says having a child. It doesn't mean physically giving birth. It means... Parents. Right, and there will be a child to Sarah. That's actually a, a good, good possible answer. But we have an answer that's more relevant <laughs> to our case, uh, which is from the Or HaChaim. It's a commentary, um, and it says, "I will certainly return." So the Or HaChaim writes, "The reason the angel repeated the words Shov Ashuv, I will return, which is a double expression, and the words Vihine." may be better understood on the base of the tradition that when Isaac was born, he suffered from a congenital defect. He was sterile. It was only after agreeing to be the sacrifice at the Akedah that he was cured of that defect. The angel hinted that he would have to return twice, at a time when he would give life. The angel was not just saying that I will return now. He was saying I will return in the future and cure Isaac of his sterility. When was that? In order that Sarah's son would, have a true, son, son would be a true son able to procreate. The words, Vihine ben Lasara, indicate that Sarah's son emanated from the left side of the emanations, the female weaker side. 
The word vihine, I'm not sure who translated weaker, by the way. It doesn't say weaker in the Hebrew. Uh, the word vihine emphasizes the origin of Isaac in Sarah's domain. Only when the angel would return once more with the male component, i.e. Abraham's input, become dom- dominant within Isaac. This occurred in Genesis 22.11, where the Torah reports that an angel called out to Avraham not to harm Isaac. The angel therefore had two tasks to perform, to announce that there would be an Isaac, and that he would possess a soul that could procreate. So what the Orchim is saying here is that before Abraham, uh, Isaac was, was bound at the Akedah, he had a female soul in some sense, and that resulted in an inability to procreate. It was only later um, that he was given a male soul, and that allowed him to have a child. He wasn't married. How do they know? Good question. Maybe that's why he wasn't married. I don't know. Um, the, the, this is a good question. The question Sometimes is, where does he know this? It's hard to know where is this coming from. Right. Where is this coming from? The Orchim is actually I don't not a. Want to believe it, yeah. But where is it coming from? So what he's, the, uh, the source of it is not clear. The Orchim doesn't say his source directly. Um, the options are one of two. Either he made it up, um, or he's using an existing tradition from Kabbalists, and he's just writing it down. Now, throughout his, his interpretation, Orchim mixes both. Um, sometimes it's his. It, it could be. But whether or not this um, interpretation is accurate for this specific case is less... Uh, relevant to me than the idea of it. The possibility that there could be a female soul within a male body. Um, Now, the problem with this is then you would expect to have a definitive sign. What would the definitive sign be? Sterility. If they actually have the female soul, then they would be sterile, which is not the case. Hmm? I thought thought there's transgender people who can. No, transgender people can. Right. So the problem with using this as a direct uh, proof of the possibility um, is that this one implies that there is a definitive sign if you have a female soul in a male body. And practically speaking, we don't see that. So it is a, a first step. Where, where, as I remember this, where, anywhere, does it indicate, does uh, any, anything indicate that actually that Isaac was sterile until the Akedah? Um, it's the Medrash. It's not a... It's a Medrash. Yeah. It's not in the Torah itself. It is not. No, because again, he wasn't married. There's no, there's no evidence that he was... Well, but the all-knowing would, would have said, you know, I mean... Uh, uh, there was nothing... There's nothing mentioned that I could remember in the Bible, in the Torah, that says that Isaac was sterile or had any. Um, well, he did have complications bearing children. Um, he had to pray. Oh, but we but, say that that was Rivka, where right. she came from, and it had to be her devout prayers. Exactly, and especially since that came after the Akedah, and if he truly regained the ability or gained the ability to have a child at the Akedah, it would have no bearing on his later yeah, issues. Like this is a yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it's an almost circular logical hole. He, he, he was, he couldn't have children because he was sterile, and he was sterile, so he couldn't have children. In other words, there's no, you don't know which, which came first. Yeah. I'm not so, following the circle here. Okay, because he, I mean, there was nothing that said that he was, in any way, 
that he had any power. He was. There was something in my. There's something about him that was not right, though, about Isaac. Well, some of them are. So I think there are like official crashes, like there's a major trauma. He was, like he was, uh, person, but that he was definitely, right, there was so something in, the, like in what I remember reading that. He was very compliant. Yes, yeah. he was almost submissive. And maybe almost, he was almost, he didn't have any of his own opinions going up there. I don't know. I don't know. And she had a question. He wasn't married. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Orifimes. Uh, I assume that he has a midrash that says he was sterile in the first place, where he's not making up the concept of that. And then he's just fitting it into this verse, explaining why the child is Tusara and why the, why the term return appears twice within that verse. I mean, I've been through this with, you know, rabbis in Torah class many right. times, and I've never once heard that midrash. Anyway. Bottom line is, there is a, uh, at least some evidence that there is a possibility, at least, of male souls within females' bodies. And um, if we go to, let's see, find it. Oh, this page. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This next source is, again, from a Kabbalistic um, source. It is the, um, I think it's the Cherkover Magid. He says, based on this, this is, this page in the Hebrew. Based on this, we can understand why um, there are more sterile humans than animals um, based on the idea of the descent of souls, because sometimes a female soul appears within a male body, um, and then it, it ha- the soul re- uh, comes back multiple times, and then one, and during one of the times, it comes back within the body of a female, and if you have um, two, fam- two female souls, they do not procreate. Um, and then it, it, re- it requires um, prayer, essentially, to have the soul switched back. And he says something similar, implying that he has the same medrash. He says, um, that's why it says, Vayetzar um, Yitzchak lo. That Yitzchak prayed for him. If the problem was for Rivka, it should have said, Vayetzar Yitzchak lo. Yitzchak prayed for her. The word for him as opposed to for her emphasizes that he was praying for himself in some sense because he needed it and not Rivka. So again, we have the same, a similar medrash where he, the problem is it within him, but in some sense this is the opposite because here it implies that he only got his soul switched back when he prayed and not earlier during the Akedah time. Um, yes? Well, you could say the same thing for Sarah then because she was very old when she had Isaac, so she must have had a male soul. It's possible, and it's, it's interesting to note that the word sarai, ending with a yud, is not a female ending. Female endings are either a or with a tough at the end. So sarai to sara makes it a more female word than a male word. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't see a source for that, and, and I don't have the authority to claim that that was the reason. But they also say that she, she didn't have a uterus or something. Exactly. She was never able. Yeah. So it wasn't. It doesn't seem like merely a soul. Thing. But when a soul comes back, it's to finish something that was unfinished. Yes. And if it could possibly show up in the wrong body, then you might 
end up with a feeling that you were. It's a God thing. God sends the souls. Not in the wrong body. See, I'm saying the wrong body incorrectly. Uh, God does, does, you know, God put that soul into that body for a reason. I don't know what the reason is. Um, but the person's feeling that, that, they're, that they're, the male aspects of themselves are not theirs might be um, indicative of the fact that their soul is a, a soul from the opposite side. Now, what they should do with themselves is not clear from there, but it does uh, imply that it, at least it might be um, not merely a deficiency within the person, but a sensitivity within the person. Possible. But again, both of these sources imply that sterility is a, is a definitive sign, which is not one that we see. So there are people who do bring these as sources, um, but in my mind, they don't seem to be conclusive. The idea is definitely there, and it's not something that we can discount offhand, but it's neither is it something that we can claim must be the reason. So now we're going to get into um, modern rabbis and their approach to this issue directly. So the next source is from the Tzitz Eliezer. Tzitz Eliezer was Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who was the chief rabbi of Israel in the early 1900s. Very well-respected rabbi. And he was asked, um, the, the, the Theseus's ship conundrum. Theseus was a Greek philosopher, and he said, let's have a ship, and it's getting old, so I replace one of the boards. Is it still the same ship? Of course, the replaced board. And I replace another board, another board, another board. At what point does it cease to be the same ship? If I've replaced every piece of the ship, is it still the same ship? This was his philosophical conundrum. So, it's the Yazer in the early 1900s. That's a better question. <laughs> Humans have too much time on their hands, you know? So this one's a little more practical. Um, oh, oh, um, heart surgery, heart transplants had just um, come around at this time to the mainstream. And a man who had recently had a heart transplant wrote to the Tzitzeliezer, and he said, um, I have the heart of a different person right now. Am I less of myself? If that person was a Kohen, am I partially a Kohen now? Um, you know, does that make a difference? Do I have to think about it? Do I have to try to figure out who they, who they were? You know, am, I now, am I now related to more people and I can't marry more people? <laughs> so this was his question. Um, so the Tzitzit Yazir responded. He says, the existence and the, um, pers- the persona of a human is not expressed in his different body parts put together. A person is not the sum of their physical parts. Rather, the person is their soul, is their deeper sense. Um, this is, it's proper to quote the Chsam Sofer, who writes that the body is not the person. It's rather a, a bag made of dirt. Therefore, we are all dirt bags. <laughs> in some sense <laughs> so and within the physical pouch lies the person which is their intellect their consciousness and their soul and therefore you can have as many transplants as you want as long as the soul remains the same this is his it doesn't explain Theseus's ship but it does explain the person dilemma which is that we could you know transplant as many parts of a person in fact a few years ago um, there was a person who had um, complete para- paralysis, neck down, and he signed up to get um, a head transplant to attempt. And 
if they could figure out how to attach the brainstem. Um, and then he would have a, you know, a more serious question in mind. How much of myself am I? Um, but the Tzitzel would then say that that's still merrily a car that the person drives around, a pouch of dirt, and the person remains the same within. Either way, so then he goes on a tangent. The Tzitzel goes on a tangent. He says, Mech kar gadol. However, there is a great um, investigation to be made. Um, what's now called um, transgender surgery, where a person switches from male to female or the opposite. Um, and he has to address this. Now, he's addressing this for the first time. It's going to be making a general pronunciation for everyone, for the world over. Uh, well, at least, his, at least Israel over, I would say. He says, there are many questions that come out of this about who the person is and what they are after such a surgery. Um, and he writes, I'm going to quote what says in the Sefer Zichron Bris, which he says that... Um, he says that a person who goes through the surgery is um, exempt from the mitzvahs that they were in before. If they are a male and they have a surgery to become a female, they are no longer um, bound by the obligations of a male. He says they've left that category. In fact, there was a case, which he quotes here, of a marriage with a man and a woman. And then the man underwent transgender surgery and became non-religious and refused to divorce his wife. He said, I'm, you know, it's not me. And the Tzitzit the Ezra quotes the source that says that that man, that that woman is now free to remarry. Why? Because a the wedding the, the wedding document says this man is marrying this woman, and when we nullify the man, the marriage itself is nullified. And so what he is saying essentially is that transgender surgery does actually affect a change in gender halachically. Um, now that doesn't mean that it's permissible. It is in fact definitely not permissible. One of the prohibitions in the Torah is removing genitalia. Clear prohibition. So in, in, in the case of a person that came and asked, could I do this? The answer is for sure no. Even female to male um, would still be prohibited. Uh, there's a separate prohibition, which is a, a man should not wear women's clothes and a woman should not wear man's clothes, which means attempting to be the opposite gender. So again, the same prohibition arises. However, once the surgery is done, the person is considered to have transitioned actually according to the Tzitzel Yezer. So what's his reasoning? So he says, he gives a few different um, arguments. One of them is based on a medrash which says that the male and female genitalia are identical, essentially, except that one is internal, one's external. So in other words, when a surgery is done, it is merrily switching what is internal and external, um, and therefore it affects actual change. But his more comprehensive explanation is he says if you went to the Talmudic times and they had to identify gender or they had to identify puberty or the ability um, to have puberty they used sex characteristics they used primary sex characteristics and secondary sex characteristics and that was the way that they told that was the way that they checked and halakhically there, there, like, there were investigations that had to be done 
So a person who undergoes surgery fulfills all of the requirements of halachic gender and um, signs. They have all the signs that in the times of the Talmud would have identified them as that gender. So he says, even though biologically no change has been made, they are still the same chromosomes, halachically they have changed. This is the Tzitz Eliezer. The Tzitz Eliezer, um, great rabbi, one rabbi. Second rabbi is the Ovadi Yosef, another chief rabbi of Israel. Um, Sephardic chief rabbi, he died um, not long ago. He had a huge burial. He was, you know, a, a, you know not a small guy, not a, not a side opinion. He's, he writes in his Oitzar Dinim Le'isha Uvas. He says, it's forbidden to do the surgery because one will be removing himself from the obligation to do mitzvahs that a man is obligated to do. The surgery itself is prohibited because once you do the surgery, you no longer are obligated in the same mitzvahs. Again, he is ascribing to the Tzitz of the Ezra's argument, which is that a surgery does actuate change from one gender to another halachically. So, he puts in parentheses, it's possible he's still obligated to do the mitzvahs, despite his surgery. He puts that as a, in parentheses. Now, if you surveyed all the rabbis, you would find that almost all of them disagree. Almost all of them say that we have much better ways to identify biological sex today. We got X and Y chromosomes, and those, those are infallible. So, well, they're infallible in the sense of, they're not infallible in the sense there are certain, you know, Kleinfelter syndrome, there are syndromes that, that do use it. But in terms of uh, a person who was identified as having these characteristics, and then the surgery, the surgery did not change those, at least. So, the surgery changed basically just surface level. So a bunch of rabbis say that we have better ways to check and therefore the surgery is nothing. And they are the majority. But it's not like the minority opinions are nobodies who just happen to say something. These are chief rabbis. So if a person came into your shul and said, I follow the opinion of the Tzitz Eliezer, what right do we have to tell them no? They have a solid foundation to rely on. Now, the majority might not be like them, but if a person is currently acting that way and believes themselves to be the opposite gender, uh, they have halachic foundation and halachic support to say that. And I think this is a, a, a misconception that people have, is that there is, it's very black and white, and there's only one opinion. Um, and that's you know, an issue where they person comes into your shul and you feel like they are outside of the halakhic boundaries when they are very possibly still within them. So, um, so uh, I find that Judaism is a very practical religion. And um, I'm looking at this uh, response by uh, Katz. Yeah. And I don't understand where he, where he even comes from. A man becomes a woman, and his wife is not allowed to divorce him. Um, not allowed to remarry. Not allowed to remarry. You would so. still require a get. So the same problem happens everywhere where husbands run away, and the but solution... she said before, this isn't the person that she married. Right, so that's the Tzitz of the Ezra's position. Chief Rabbi of Israel, but a minority opinion. Some say. Some say. 
then the majority opinion is what Rabbi Eliezer Katz said and Rabbi Eliezer Grossnas, which is the opposite. Which is that That's not very practical. Well, it's no less practical than any other scenario of a husband who refuses to give a gift, which is impractical in that sense. And it's a disaster. Um, but it's, not it is what it is. Not everyone has surgery, and they still feel they are of the opposite gender. Right. So, halakhically, without a surgery, there is no basis that I can see for actually being the opposite gender. It's possible that you have the soul within you. Possible. But halakhically, the soul is not uh, a testable characteristic in that sense. So even according to the most lenient opinion, without a surgery, there would be no grounds for claiming to be the opposite gender. Allah, at least that I could see. Yes? There was a uh, thing on television, a documentary on transgenders, and this, this man, um, he, he, became, he, became, he, he was a man, but he, he, he didn't, I mean, he was, he was a man, but he was really a woman. Yeah, trans. trans man or trans woman? Trans. What, what they, if it's a man... Transition to female or transition to man? Transition to being a woman, it's a um, trans woman. A woman, trans, sex issues because like he mentioned very briefly there are intersex there are yeah there are biological intersex which means they're not fully male or female there's there are some like chromosomal issues where x xx or xy it's not the whole story <laughs> so i would maybe teach my kids that stuff but it's not not required yeah so um, the last source is from the Encyclopedia of Talmudic Medicine, um, a recent book which summarizes modern positions um, on these things. And he writes, first he mentions the minority opinion. Then he says, uh, the majority holds that that an external surgery, for changing the gender, uh, the sex, does not change anything from halacha perspective because it's clear from a biological perspective that no change has occurred. And therefore, a woman who switched to be a man is not allowed to sit within the men's section and should not be given an aliyah to the Torah. Rather, treat her like a woman in all cases. This is the majority opinion, but not completely the majority. And this is the, the biggest issue, which is that for most people that walk through the door, you have no idea whether they've undergone a surgery or not, even if you were the tzitzeli, even if you followed the tzitzeli answer. And it's not exactly something that you should be asking people anyway. 
And on top of that, there is a bigger issue. Let's say I have a sandwich. It's made of plant meat and a bowl of milk. I dunk my, my, my fake meat sandwich in the milk and I eat it. Have I done anything wrong? Yes. Yes, you have. What have you done wrong? We had that class because the meat came, the cells came from an animal. Right, I'm talking about plant, plant burger. It looks like meat, but it's plant burger. Have you done anything wrong? You've done one thing wrong. You've done one thing wrong, which is you're misleading people. If it looks pro- problematic, that is a problem inherent. Marit ayin, exactly, the look of the eye. So what you needed to do is you need to put a little sign that says plant burger. That's why you don't go and make McDonald's and get a cup of coffee. Exactly. That's one of the reasons that people don't say not to do that. Exactly. People walk in and see if the rabbi walked in, you know, probably it's a kosher establishment. Yeah. So Marit ayin is an issue. Um, so <laughs> well, this opinion said, well, this, this gender reassignment surgery has changed nothing, and therefore don't put them with the other people on that side of the mechitza. Well, that's ignoring the reason why we have the mechitza in the first place, which is a visual issue. So if a person walks in and looks 100% like a woman, 100% like a woman, they haven't undergone surgery, you stick them on the men's section? What, what is the purpose of the mechitza in the first place? Well, you don't really ask them. It's like showing your, I had my vaccine card. Exactly. You wouldn't ask. You just stick them wherever they wish to go. Well, you stick them where they look like they should go. Mm. The problem with that, now that would be the ideal. The problem is, who stands at the door and says, you look male enough or female enough? A person who has undergone puberty will have... Well, you're the one who said you stick them somewhere, so somebody's sticking... No, so that's the thing. Sorry, yes, let's back up. So let's back up. Um, the ideal solution would be that they would go wherever they, what they look like. Yes. But for those who undergo transitioning after puberty, there are characteristics that never disappear and will always look somewhere in between. Cheekbones, it depends, it depends on a lot of different things. Yes, there is a segment of the population that uh, looks somewhere in between. And... Even within, there is how much do you present and, and, and what clothes are you wearing. And who is the person who stands by the door and polices um, you know, a checklist of exactly how masculine or feminine you look? It's absurd. It's absurd. Who's going to be the person to, to do that? Um, so what most people say is they kind of ignore this last section, which is, uh, you know, doesn't make much sense. And they say that essentially in terms of where we sit people, we sit them wherever they wish to go because there is no person who is able to tell them. Now, if they look 100%, 100% like the opposite gender, then you would have an obligation to tell them to sit somewhere else. But that is a, a touchy issue, and it usually does not happen. It would, require, um, it would require a person to put basically no effort into their transition to... Yes, that would be the concern. And it's between the person and Hashem and, and nobody else. But it is with everyone else because the reason why we, we separate them is because of the way people look. If someone considers themselves a female and they're doing everything they can to look female. Mm-hmm. Right, everything they can. See, this is the line. Everything they can. If they're putting forth effort to look female, 
then we would basically let them choose wherever they want to go. But what if they claimed to be female but have no outward characteristics? Now, you know, which is not so crazy. Uh, you know, not so, not so uh, ancient feminist theory believes that basically every single aspect of masculine and feminine are social constructs. Right? So a woman comes into the Orthodox shul mm-hmm. and she's got a kippah and a talus. Do you ask her to take it off? No, because of course I've not. Seen that. Well, I don't know why you would. She's allowed to wear both of those things. That's a, she's imitating male. Well, yes and no. Meaning, um, both you're allowed, a woman is allowed to wear a talus. Um, in fact, the Moshe Feinstein writes that women wrote to him about wearing a talus, and he said um, they're allowed to wear a talus. Preferably, they should get one of a different color or shape so as not to imitate men in that sense. Um, but it's not, you know, directly. And on top of that, um, we often don't, we don't judge people in the way that they're serving God when they come into a synagogue. Right? One of the prohibitions on Shabbos is driving to synagogue on Shabbos. Somebody stand by the door and say, you drove to Shul on Shabbos and you did not? Of course not. We say that's up to the person themselves. Rabbi Yelan as a child, he would stand in the window and let his father know when the 10th man drove up. Exactly. We accept them anyway. Um, and in terms of, of, of sins done, um, going through a surgery even if it's prohibited, ranks pretty low on the list. It's not, a, it's not a sin that harms others. It's not a sin of passion and desire. It's a person who has an issue that causes them to go through an expensive and painful process. And to view that person as a sinner is a disservice to them. The same way we wouldn't, we wouldn't you know, call a person who did all sorts of things a sinner. There's all sorts of people that come into our synagogue who might have done something. You know, most people around the table are not as religious as I am. So what? So what? What about uh, in an orthodox synagogue? I mean, in a conservative synagogue, they, they have a, what's called the family room or the unisex yeah. room. But in orthodox, if you go to the bathroom, but, he does, but the man is still a, a man under the women's clothes, that's when you know Hopefully, no one would know. I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't know, know exactly how women's bathrooms work, but I would imagine that no one yeah. would know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if a person is is flaunting this type of situation, then we would, you know tell them it's not appropriate. Right. But and there's other problems. With them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are other problems. The problem that's happening nowadays in the school is that one day I'm a boy. Right. Right. This is why it's there. There is, in some sense, a requirement for effort, at least, um, effort to at least appear like you are attempting to be the opposite sex. Um, but if it's completely arbitrary, and if you, again, as I was saying, the feminist theory of everything is a social construct, so you know there are no male or female clothes, there are no female or male anything's really hairstyles, then. With that theory, then it really becomes impossible to say. Um, but that's not currently where we are, at least. But the main takeaway is empathy. Is empathy. Empathy. 
Empathy for, a pers- for people that are in a, a no-win situation with um, no long-term complete solution. Especially people who transition after puberty, they're never going to pass 100%. And it's, you know, most of them will still feel some sense of inadequacy with their body forever. And a person like that to be excluded from more things is it's I would say that I that's the way I feel. I'm very empathetic to people that are have an issue. Yeah. I have empathy it's a lot mental. A lot mental and a lot uh, new society. Because when I grew up we didn't have any transgender that I knew about. We didn't have any gay guys. So what, we, what we've seen is that it's a mixture of people who were hiding it before and also trends where we see that there is one component which is the, I guess you call it the new society where people are jumping on bandwagons but there's also clearly the fact that people were hiding it and repressing it and didn't have options. There was no surgical option and there was no puberty blockers there were no hormones so you'd never see them. I was going to we were blessed with a very challenged grandchild of Shalom. And it was the family feeling, we talked about it, that for some reason that soul needed to come back into that particular body. The blessing was that we got her. And after 15 years, she did whatever she needed to do and returned. Do we have that feeling with these souls? You'd have to ask someone bigger than me. Um, I have no personal experience and really no Kabbalistic insight. I know that... Is it um, accepted that way? That in, I guess, not exactly parallel scenarios, but when the Rebbe was talking about uh, people who had children with, you know, certain um, illnesses um, or disorders that prevented them from being productive in what we would, you know, our current sense. Uh, A father came to the Rebbe and his child basically could do nothing on their own. So he said, why would the soul be sent to this world? And what was the purpose of that soul? And I said, when a person gives charity, the person who's giving charity can easily feel like they're doing something for the other person. And that's a fallacy. Something's being done for them. They're being given an opportunity to help. So that child came to the world to give others the opportunity to help them. Oh, we know that. So whenever the people around them no longer required that. They moved on. But I don't know if I'm the right person to say that this is every scenario, this is the case. You know. It's a problem. Yeah. Can I throw a question? Yes. No, thank you.